Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We're in chapter 4 today, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Now, as early as chapter 3, Matthew has introduced us to what we could call the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We've uh, read about John the Baptist and then how the Lord Jesus is baptized by John with a lot of information to set us up so that way we understand that Jesus is not a sinner like everyone else being baptized by John, but is in fact the Son of God. God himself speaks from heaven and testifies concerning the Lord Jesus that he is God's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And then in chapter 4, Um, After the Lord Jesus has received the Holy Spirit, that is to say he's been anointed by the Spirit, empowered by him to carry out his messianic task, um, the Holy Spirit sends the Lord Jesus into the wilderness. And it is there that Satan indirectly and um, accidentally, if you think about it that way, uh, testifies to who the Lord Jesus is. Uh, Three times he says, if you are the Son of God, uh, well, let's Take this thing out for a test drive and let's see if you can use some of your special powers. But the Lord Jesus responds in so many words saying that's not the way that it works. He has not been given the Holy Spirit. He is not God's son so that way he can make his life easier or do whatever it is that he wants. He must wait upon God as a faithful son who will do what his father tells him, waiting on God's timing. He will do God's work God's way so as to get God's results. And with these credentials in hand as the fully validated Messiah, he then is set up to begin his work. And that's where we start in verse 12. Uh, But one of the important questions is, well, where is he going to begin? Think about it. Where should the Messiah even start? It's like there are so many options, it can be crippling. Uh, As a personal story, I remember when I was commended to full-time Christian work by a group of Christians in Lansing, Michigan, called Carriage Hill Bible Chapel. And they're very gracious. I'm still commended by them to um, the work of the Lord. Uh, But when I was commended and sent out to do God's work, it was kind of a general call. I was commended officially to the grace of God and to the work of the ministry. Well, as you then set out on a Monday to start actually working, it becomes difficult to know where should I actually begin? Where do I actually start this thing? And eventually, I was led to work with a group called the Ezekiel Project, which is in the Detroit area. And I settled down with a group called Curtis Gospel Chapel, an assembly in Detroit, and worked in the inner city there for several years. And now I'm in Dubuque, Iowa. But the Lord Jesus was faced with a similar question. Will he start where John the Baptist started? Should he have a desert ministry preaching out in the wilderness? Or should he go down to Jerusalem and focus where all of the quote-unquote religious people are? Should he be where the temple is? That seems like a good place to start. That's where all of the serious-minded Jewish people are. Or should he, uh, again, be somebody who kind of retreats from society? Well, we find out in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17, exactly where it is that 
uh, the Lord Jesus decides to begin his ministry. Uh, As we read this text, keep your eye out for the reasons that Jesus uh, decides to start where he does. So, beginning in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There are a couple different reasons uh, that Jesus is in Capernaum in Galilee. And the first thing that we come across is what we could label a historical reason. He's uh, discovered that John the Baptist has been put in prison. Now, just as a note, comparing this with the other Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, uh, it becomes clear that Matthew has skipped uh, about a year, at least, of Jesus's quote-unquote full-time ministry. The way that the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke read, it seems like Jesus only has a one-year ministry culminating in a trip down to Jerusalem for Passover. But that's not the impression we were to get if we read the Gospel of John, which uh, records several uh, trips down to Jerusalem. So if if we want to get more information about this first year of ministry, we can turn to John chapter 1 and read all the way into John chapter 4. However, the mistake to be avoided at this point is thinking that what Matthew should have done is include those events, and we can help him out a little bit by supplementing his gospel with other canonical information. That's a bad approach. Matthew has written a good gospel. In fact, he's written an inspired gospel uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to pay careful attention to the way he decides to tell his story. And the way that he decides to tell his story is that Jesus begins ministering in Capernaum. So let's think about why it is that he goes to Capernaum. Again, he's heard that John the Baptist uh, has been imprisoned. And so these are dangerous times. And so he goes into Galilee. Now, this is a difficult verse to understand because the the person responsible for imprisoning John the Baptist is Herod, and Herod's jurisdiction is Galilee. So Jesus has not escaped danger by fleeing into Galilee. Uh, In fact, he's still in Herod's jurisdiction. Instead, uh, he is perhaps even confronting Herod uh, and his claims to power. That has been suggested. Or he may just be not wanting to uh, boldly continue John's work. And yet at the same time, when we read verse 17, he's clearly continuing John's same message. Notice that Matthew has been very careful to uh, repeat Jesus's message as the exact same message as John the Baptist in 3.2. So although it's kind of difficult to understand, he isn't completely escaping danger. He's stepping back a little bit from what John is doing and yet clearly continuing John's own message. By going into Galilee, he is going north. If you were to look at a, a map of the land of Israel at this time, you'd notice that Judea is in the south, and that's where Jerusalem is. Again, this is where all the big wigs and uh, 
religious elite would have been. This is where the temple would have been. This is where all of the religious activity seems to be happening, at least the formal stuff. Then just north of that, you have Samaria. It's a long history between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, with the Jewish people looking down on the Samaritans and the Samaritans returning the favor. And this kind of creates a buffer between Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, and then Galilee in the north. Because of Samaria, the northern land of Galilee is separated from all the religious activity down the south. So we have something that is, we have a region that is kind of looked down on. This is an area that is surrounded by the Gentiles, and there's a lot of Gentiles intermingling, so much so that Matthew calls it here Galilee of the Gentiles, using the language of Isaiah. So when Jesus decides to start his ministry, he goes to a place that is not famous for being religious. It's not where all of the other people are. In fact, it is a dark area. It is a place that has been um, looked down on by many other Jewish people. And there's a lot of Gentile interaction. Now, the balance here is uh, to say that on the one hand, Jesus is ministering at the beginning of his work in areas that are close to Gentiles, and yet it's clear that he doesn't have a Gentile-focused ministry. He has come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, though as we continue to read on in Matthew, we'll find out that when he bumps shoulders with Gentiles, he's not afraid of that and is willing even to interact with them. So that's a little bit of the historical circumstances as to why Jesus is in Capernaum. However, Matthew is more interested, not in the historical reasons, but in the scriptural reasons as to why he is there. This is in order to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. That This is formally the fifth time that we have that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by uh, a prophet. However, we're in a little bit of a different class here in that now we have Jesus deciding what to do. Whereas before it was because of the angels or because of the the virgin birth um, or because of uh, King Herod's actions, here we actually have Jesus deciding to do something. There's actually a couple different ways that we could understand that first conjunction in verse 14, in order that it might be fulfilled. We could just read them like we've read the other fulfillment quotations that this happened, but unbeknownst to anyone else, this actually uh, fulfills scripture. But since Jesus is the actor, it may be, and this is the way that I prefer to read it, that Jesus himself decides to go and live in Galilee, particularly in Capernaum, because he himself wants to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. Now, this is a fascinating prophecy, and it'll be worth our time to turn there and read it. Actually, let's begin in chapter 8, starting in verse 21, to get a good running start. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light 
has dawned. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of the burden and the staff of the shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, I've read a decent amount here of Isaiah at the end of 8 and the beginning of 9 to show that this is an incredible messianic prophecy. In fact, it, it easily links itself with the earlier uh, son prophecy of 714 that um, Matthew has gone out of his way to point out about the virgin giving birth. Uh, so once we go back to Isaiah 9 and look at the larger context, it's about Israel being underneath the, uh, the difficulty of the exile experiencing judgment by God, and yet uh, there will be a deliverer, a child who will, born, who will be born to sit on the throne of David and rule over the house of Israel so as to bring about peace and justice. And this light, this, this rain is like a light that is dawning. Now, the image of light dawning is a helpful way of thinking about the trickiness of the kingdom of God being at hand. We talked earlier in another uh, episode of is does this mean here or does this mean near near? Um, well, think of the idea of the day dawning. It is beginning. It is something that is in process. You can see the light and yet it is not fully there. The work of the Lord Jesus in his ministry is like the kingdom light dawning in a place of darkness. Now, let's stop and just think about what Jesus has done. When he begins his ministry, he has decided to pick a dark place a despised place, and it's there that he wants to start his ministry. Uh, This is how he begins his kingdom work. We still today need people to shine the light of the gospel everywhere, but we especially need people to follow the Lord's example of going to dark places without the light in order to be his witness there. We don't so much need colonizers or people who just zoom into a dark place, do their ministry work, and then retreat back to their comfortable houses. Instead, we need people who are willing to go to the dark places and uh, live out the light of the gospel uh, in front of people. Uh, I'd like to cl- close with uh, the little ditty by the famous uh, C.T. Stud. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Uh, that's, that's what the great missionary C.T. Studd said. That's what the great missionary C.T. Studd said. And, it, and in doing so, he follows the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.